Hello and welcome to The Coping Toolbox, a child psychology podcast hosted by clinical psychologists Dr. Layla Din Osman, Dr. Mary Simmery McDonald, and Dr. Jennifer Rend. We hope that this podcast helps parents, children, and teens learn new coping skills in dealing with their stress and anxiety and to help strengthen relationships in their lives. So welcome to episode three of The Coping Toolbox. I'm Dr. Mary Simring McDonald, and I'm joined again by my co-hosts, Dr. Leila Din Osman and Dr. Jen Friend. Today is part two of our anxiety discussion, so we will be talking more specifically about how to help children and teens cope with anxiety. Many of the strategies that we talk about are rooted in a treatment approach called cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT. CBT is an evidence-based practice with good efficacy for treating anxiety disorders in children and youth. So very basically, CBT involves identifying and improving challenging thought processes, so that's the cognitive part, as well as behaviors. It also involves developing our coping skills through things like relaxation techniques. For anxiety disorders in particular, Research has found that CBT is a very effective form of treatment, especially when looking at long-term improvements. Today, we will talk about some of the ways to address the cognitions or the thoughts associated with anxiety and the behaviors that we can do to help us deal with anxiety. So we're going to start by talking a little bit about the thinking part. Dr. Jen, I wonder if you can start by talking about how we can work with our thinking and self-talk to challenge anxiety. For sure. So I think that the starting point is really to identify how much power our thoughts often have over our mood. Um, So we have a thought come in and we so often just because we have the thought will believe that thought and um, a huge part of of CBT, as Dr. Mary was discussing, has to do with um, really challenging those thoughts. So whenever I have somebody in, We always talk about the anxiety, we call it the anxiety balance beam or the anxiety seesaw, where if you picture kind of like a teeter-totter and one side of the teeter-totter is down and the other side is up, and I actually have kids draw this out in my office all the time, and the side that's up is the side where they're, it's, it's an overestimation, right? So on the side that's up, we'll draw an arrow going up and then we say on the one side, when we're feeling anxious, we're really overestimating the bad things, the negative things that might happen. Right. And then on the other side of our teeter totter, the side that's down, we draw a down arrow and we say we're really underestimating our ability to handle whatever happens. Right. So whenever we're feeling anxious about anything, and this is true for me, this is true for adults as well. When we're feeling anxious, we're overestimating the bad things and underestimating our ability to handle it. And part of the therapy is really about not so much making the teeter totter go the complete opposite way, but more balancing it out so that we're kind of bringing down that overestimation. So, you know, the things that we're thinking, the bad things that we're thinking are going to happen are actually less likely to happen than what we're imagining. And on the other side, we also have, you know, we're underestimating our coping ability. So if we balance that out, we actually are much more capable of handling whatever challenges uh, we encounter. So that's kind of our first step is just understanding how that balance beam works. Uh, the next thing we often talk about in my office is it's called externalizing anxiety. So it's sort of um, often the child that has anxiety or the person that has anxiety um, feels almost picked on um, and feels bad about their anxiety. And that doesn't help anyone when you already feel bad, when you're feeling bad about your emotions. So when we externalize it, we actually talk about the anxiety being outside of the person. So for example, we might uh, draw a picture of what anxiety looks like to that person to that child and they might draw a picture and they might name it, right? So it could be, for example, the worry bully, right? And so they'll have a picture and they kind of draw something to represent it. And usually kids are much better at coming up with some sort of creative name. Um, But then rather than us fighting against the child and kind of feeling like, you know, the child and the parent are fighting against each other, it's like you're a team and you're fighting against the anxiety. So that externalizing the anxiety can be so helpful so that we all feel like we're working as a team. Um, The other big piece with thoughts is um, really working on um, kind of empowering the child, 
right? So we want the child to be bossing back the anxiety. So even though we externalize the anxiety, it's not saying the child isn't taking um, any control over the situation. We actually do want the child to feel empowered and in control. So it's sort of the first step is identifying what are some of my worry thoughts? And then how am I going to fight back against those worry thoughts? What am I going to say to the worry bully? Um, so for example, if the worry bully, if I have a big presentation and the worry bully saying you're going to do a bad job, people are going to laugh at you, you're going to fail. What we want to do is, again, sort of first identify those thoughts and then be able to say, OK, I know what this is. This is my worry bully. Um, I think about the anxiety balance beam and I know I'm overestimating the bad things, underestimating my ability to handle it. Um, and I'm going to start bossing back anxiety. So I'm going to say, you know what, in the past, I've done really well on presentations or you know, uh, sometimes presentations are anxiety provoking for me, but they go OK. Um, I'm just going to do my best job on it. And it's really about fighting back uh, against the anxiety. Um, and just to add to what the Dr. Jen was um, saying about the importance of looking for evidence um, to support or disprove your beliefs around um, the anxious thoughts. Um, I found in clinical practice, it can be very helpful to use the analogy of a detective. So thinking of yourself as a detective who's looking for proof, right? Proof that your thoughts are either true or untrue and looking at all the evidence. And I find young children especially really like that analogy um, because it's kind of like role playing and it's a lot of fun for them. Sometimes they can even put on their detective thinking hat and pretend they're, de they're a detective and um, really writing it out, I find is also a really helpful practice for kids because um, they can also take what they're writing home from a session uh, or carry those papers around with them when they're at school or they're in an anxiety provoking situation. And it just helps remind them like, oh, this is my anxious thought. Um, and this is the evidence against it or, you know, for it. And often what they find out is there's a lot more evidence against the, the anxious thought than there is uh, supporting the anxious thought. Um, another piece of that detective thinking uh, procedure or exercise is rating your anxiety before and after you do it. So um, with kids, usually a zero to 10 scale is really helpful. So zero being no anxiety, 10, the worst anxiety possible. Um, I find the rating before is usually high. And then when they go through that procedure of looking for proof or evidence, they often rate their anxiety at the end as being much lower. And that whole process I find really helpful, especially for younger children. Um, but adolescents as well um, can use the same strategies, right? Uh, when they're looking at evidence to support or against. Yeah, it's this very empowering kind of approach. You know, a lot of what you're talking about is putting the control back in the child or the teenager's hands, um, as opposed to feeling like the anxiety is overpowering them or they don't have any control in the situation. Um, so these are some really, really nice ideas for um, working on the thought processes associated. And this also goes back a little bit to what we talked about in our last episode with the cognitive distortions. So this would be a place where a lot of those cognitive distortions would come up, where we do that work of identifying, and then this nice job of challenging some of those cognitive distortions, or at least neutralizing um, those thoughts by looking for evidence on both sides. Just to add to what Dr. Layla was saying as well, um, just with the thoughts. So often when we, there are certain areas that are kind of, in my office, we often call them like sticky areas, right? Where they're just areas where we do tend to feel a bit more anxious. And again, this is something we all have. I have them as well. Um, all people have them. And we often have these negative automatic thoughts um, that are coming in. And so when Dr. Layla was talking about writing out the other side, so you know, kind of examining the evidence on the other side, this can be so helpful because what's happening is your brain's actually making some of those connections where you start to actually look for that, you know, the evidence to support. So for example, um, say your thought is the presentation's gonna go very poorly. And once you start to look for evidence to say, hey, you know what, the presentation's probably gonna go okay, or I'm probably gonna do well on the presentation, you're actually starting to look for those positive things rather than the negative. And your brain's actually forming some of those connections so that those thoughts are gonna come more quickly rather than some of those anxious negative thoughts that are coming in. One of the really cool things about doing that is that you start to catch 
thoughts that we might not have realized that we actually had. Um, so these are called automatic thoughts, things that come up in our brain without us realizing it. And we don't necessarily understand the impact it has on how we feel. So if we take the presentation example, we might have these thoughts coming up, like I'm going to do so horribly. Everybody's going to laugh at me. I'm going to get up there and I won't be able to talk. Um, and we're not necessarily catching those thoughts, but we're just feeling feeling a lot of anxiety. So doing these steps that Dr. Layla and Dr. Jen are describing, um, it really helps us first become aware of what those thinking patterns are, and then figure out some of these ways of challenging them. Um, now, Dr. Layla, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how we can use relaxation to assist with this process. Absolutely. So the first step we were just talking about um, involves challenging some of those negative or anxious thoughts that we're having. So that's more of the thinking aspect of it. Um, in a minute, we're going to be talking about something called exposure and how that impacts um, anxiety and why it's so important in treatment. But before we get to exposure, we need to have some really good coping skills, right? So when we're doing exposure with uh, children and teens, it can be a very anxiety provoking um, experience. And so it becomes really important to kind of prep for that experience, um, learning ways to deescalate your anxiety and to relax your body before you do exposure. And so, um, you know, last episode, we talked about how anxiety triggers a part of our brain, um, which evolutionarily speaking, was meant to protect us in very dangerous situations. Um, but we can help kind of calm that part of the brain down when we do relaxation techniques. So it in a way is tricking our brains. Um, not to feel like we're being threatened, right? So tricking our brains to think, oh, this is not really as dangerous as I thought it was, and I don't need to be in that flight or fight response anymore. And so we know through the research and through practice that there are certain techniques that really help deescalate that anxiety and calm that part of the brain down. A really popular one in therapy because it's so easy to do and also so easy to carry with you anywhere you are. So whether you're a student sitting at your desk or you're driving in the car and you're in traffic or you're late for a meeting, deep breathing is one that I love to recommend. Um, and this works really well for all ages young children and older children, adults. Um, so deep breathing, there's many different techniques out there um, for doing it. The one that I like to recommend just because it's easy to remember is counting to four um, at, a, at a reasonable pace, not too quickly, not too slowly. Um, counting to four as you inhale and counting to four as you exhale. And that's it. It's as simple as that. And really slowing that breath down can help um, stop that flight or fight response. And, you know, the cortisol, the adrenaline that's getting um, secreted in your body will stop much quicker than if you don't do the deep breathing. Because often when we're in a state of anxiety, we're breathing very quickly, right? And, and not taking those deep full breaths because we're in a state of um, stress or anxiety. So that's one technique um, that I like to recommend uh, almost for every client. Um, another really popular one for kids and teens is what we call progressive muscle relaxation or PMR. Again, I like this one because it's simple to remember. Um, and it's also easy for them to do anywhere. So even if they're sitting at their desk in class, they can do some of these um, techniques and no one will notice they're doing it. So progressive muscle relaxation is basically tensing one muscle up at a time in your body and then holding that tension there. So really squeezing the muscle for a couple of seconds and then releasing the tension. And you would do that for um, as many muscles as you can think of in your body. So when I'm teaching kids this in session, we may start with toes, for example, pretending that they're squeezing a marble between their toes and they're really squeezing really hard, holding that muscle tension. Sometimes I'll see the kids almost shaking because they're tensing so hard and we know that's you know really good. And then they release the muscle and then they move up so they can go to their knees or their thigh muscle. Um, they can do their uh, biceps, for example. You can even do it in your face, right? So tensing uh, your facial muscles um, can be really helpful. And you do your whole body. And I find kids start yawning a lot. I don't know if you've noticed that too, um, Dr. Jen and Dr. Mary, but in sessions, <laughs> they start to yawn when they're doing this deep breathing as well. And that's when I know it's working. Um, and so that's a really easy technique. 
And I should mention too, there's so many free resources online right now. Like it's really great, um, not just in podcasts, but also on YouTube, for example, if you look up um, things like deep breathing or PMR, you'll see tons of really good videos pop up. I know Sick Kids has lots of really good videos that you can reference as well as Anxiety Canada. But if you wanted a script, for example, there's lots of free stuff available online as well, as well as videos. Um, getting back to the relaxation techniques, Another one that's really helpful for kids as well as teens is mindfulness. And there are so many different ways of doing mindfulness. Um, so I know we talked uh, last session about um, going for walks and really looking at the environment and your senses. So what are you seeing? What are you hearing? What are you uh, feeling in your body or touching? And what are you smelling and what are you tasting, right? So that's a simple one you can do in a variety of different contexts. So um, with kids, we'll say um, the five, four, three, two, one um, exercise. So name five things that you can see, four things that you can hear, three things that you can touch or feel, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. And you can do that um, when you're going for a nature walk or when you're sitting at your desk or you're in your room by yourself. So it doesn't really matter where you are, but bringing that awareness back to your senses as opposed to the anxious thought can be a very relaxing experience. Um, the last one I'm gonna go into more detail about because there's so many is visualization. And that one is also really, really good for younger kids because they have such great imaginary skills um that i finally really get into this one so i often will ask my clients think about a time in your life where you felt the most relaxed um and they take a few minutes they think about and often they'll come back and uh, report things like being on vacation at the beach or being at my cottage sitting outside uh, those are two very popular ones but i hear all kinds of different experiences um, and so then for example with the beach example i'll say um, okay i want you to really close your eyes and picture yourself there and then I'll often say, what do you see around you? And they'll describe the sand or the ocean waves. I'll say, what do you hear? And they say, oh, I hear the ocean waves crashing and people talking and laughing in the background. Everybody's having fun. Okay, what do you, what do you feel? What do you um, touch with your hands? Oh, I can feel the sand you know, in, on my feet between my toes. It feels really soft, really gentle. What do you smell? Oh, I smell the ocean air. And then what do you taste? The final one, oh, that really yummy, you know, juice I'm drinking on the beach or uh, drink, right? So um, it really helps bring them into that mindset of actually being there when they're using their five senses and choosing a time in their life where they felt really relaxed. Um, and again, some of my clients will start yawning as they're doing this, right? Because they're just so happy and at peace. So I don't know if um, Dr. Mary or Dr. Jen had any other examples. There's so many relaxation techniques um, that work really well with kids. And I have to say their imagination is so vivid, right? It's, it's a really helpful strategy for them. Kids are so creative with their ideas for some of these um, relaxation techniques. And I was just going to say that another really helpful way to use visualizations it's also imagining ourselves sometimes in the anxiety provoking situations. So as an example, if somebody's really anxious about a presentation or taking a test, you can actually use visualization to assist with that. Um, so they might picture themselves getting up in front of the class and feeling confident and starting their presentation. Um, they might imagine themselves sitting down at their desk and you know looking up looking at their test and opening it up um, and feeling confident and that sort of thing. So that's another nice way to use some um, visualizations as well. And there are some really good guides for that online also. Those are great examples, um, Dr. Layla and Dr. Mary. Um, and uh, I use similar things in my office as well. And I'm also a big fan of, it's a little more challenging now um, because of doing therapy virtually, but I'm a big fan of getting kids um, to draw things out. Um, I feel like they remember it better as well when they draw it out. So for example, with the visualization, I'll often have kids kind of choose the place that they want um, and then we'll actually draw it out. And that just helps with some of the visualization and sort of what are you seeing and what are the colors? And, you know, they take some time to really kind of put that effort in. And I just feel like it, it kind of crystallizes it in their minds that much more. And I find that can be really helpful as well. One of my favorite things um, to do with kiddos in my office is actually to make a coping toolbox with them. Um, so the way that we do this is that I have them choose a box or another special sort of container, 
and they can decorate it however they want. So make it really special make it really um, individual to them. And then inside we put little index cards that um, reference certain types of coping strategies. So these might be relaxation strategies that we've learned together. Um, it might be some of these mindful strategies that Dr. Layla was talking about. Um, so for the five, four, three, two, one, um, it might be something like writing down, repeating a word in our mind until it starts to sound funny. Um, and then we also put things like coping cards in there um, that have some nice coping statements like I can do this. Um, I'm not going to let my anxiety bully me today or whatever the child comes up with. Um, and another nice thing to add in there are some sensory items. So maybe something that's really soft to touch, um, like a piece of silk or a soft piece of material, maybe something that smells really nice that you can put in, and maybe something like a calming picture or something that's visually calming for them. Um, and this is a really nice tool or, or set of tools that they can use when they're struggling. They can go into their coping box. And if they're having trouble thinking about what to use in that moment, they can just choose something from their coping toolbox. That's a really great idea, Dr. Mary. And uh, another piece that I really like about these is sometimes sometimes in the moment as, as kids or as parents, we are feeling really anxious and it's really hard to know what to do. So the more we don't have to think about it, the more we can just kind of have our go-tos, the better. So being able to just know, okay, I'm feeling a bit anxious, I'm feeling a bit off right now, I can go up to my room and I can grab my my coping toolbox and, and I can, you know, have these tools and I can I can choose what's going to be the best in this in this situation. And just being able to have them there at hand very, fairly quickly, I think really helps as well. I really yeah, agree with that. I think, you know, we've talked a lot in our other episodes about things like these healthy habits and how sometimes initially it's tough to know what to do um, when we are experiencing emotional distress, but the more that we practice it, the easier it gets over time. So it's very helpful to have those go-tos so we don't have to make the decision when we're already feeling stressed out or we're already feeling anxious. We have something that we can go and draw upon. Um, and then hopefully later on, it becomes um, much easier. Dr. Mary, you just reminded me as well, um, when we were talking about relaxation tools, one of the things I have, uh, as you had said, Dr. Mary, just the, you know, creating habits um, and healthy habits is so important. So when I'm working with kids, I actually will get them to practice a lot of these tools before they go to sleep at night um, at a time where they might actually be relaxed. Because sometimes we think, okay, I'll only do the um, deep breathing when I'm feeling really, really anxious. Uh, but sometimes you can start to pair the deep breathing with your anxiety, which may not actually be helpful in the long run, in the long run. So I'll often say, why don't we just, you know, I'll introduce a new tool and the kids will practice each night before they go to bed and they can try out the different tools and usually for a week or two at a time. And they'll notice as they practice it, it gets, they actually get better and better at being able to relax themselves and being able to relax. And then once they kind of get confident and comfortable with the tool, then they can start using it in during experiences where they're feeling a little more anxious. I would add to that too, that um, the other great thing about practicing right before bedtime is that it actually helps with sleep too, right? So, you know, a lot of kids also feel quite anxious at bedtime, right? I, that's something that's really common. It's when there is quiet in the house and they're by themselves and they don't have the distractions, a lot of anxious kids will report, I can't fall asleep, right? Because they're just thinking about these anxious thoughts over and over again. So practicing some of those relaxation techniques at night, right before bed, not only helps with uh, learning the tools and strategies, but also with the sleep and also reducing some of those nighttime anxieties. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes my child clients are like, why do I need to practice this at times when I'm calm? But doing that, really developing it as a habit, it really helps to facilitate the use of these strategies at times where we are anxious. It's so much more difficult um, to think through exactly what to do, how to do it, um, at a time when we're already feeling anxious. Now we've talked a fair bit about the importance of exposure and the treatment of anxiety. So this idea of facing our fears, Dr. Chen, would you be able to talk about what that looks like in practice and maybe what parents can do to help with this at home? Sure. So um, what we typically want to do when we're feeling anxious is avoid. Um, the problem with avoiding a situation is that 
uh, we don't learn that we can handle it um, and it doesn't reinforce our coping abilities. So the idea behind the uh, exposure or facing your fears um, is just realizing that, hey, I can handle this. I am capable of dealing with this situation. So often in my office, what we'll do is we'll create, um, we call it a, a fear hierarchy or a fear ladder. Um, where we're looking at, we're basically trying to figure out how can we break down whatever this fear is into tiny uh, little steps, right? And in my office, all my, all, my uh, all the kids and teens I work with know I always say we're working it. It's baby steps, right? Baby steps in the right direction. Um, so it's it's um, kind of trying to slowly uh, master one step after another after another. Um, so to take an example, um, say for example, there was a fear of of snakes. Right, so um, you might have a fear ladder where um, the first step might just be saying the word snake or even seeing the word spelt, right? So it might be something really small. Um, and then there might be later steps where it's looking at pictures or looking at videos. Um, it might be going into a pet store where you can see a snake and it increases to kind of a point where Dr. Layla mentioned earlier, you know, you, she talked about rating fear, right? So it might start, some of those fears might be a one or two out of 10 and you wanna get right up to kind of a nine or 10 out of 10. Um, obviously you're not gonna start at the most scary step. You're gonna start at the baby steps, right? So the the ratings where you're only going to be maybe a one or two out of 10, that's where you're going to you're going to start. Um, the reason for that is that you get to practice your skills, you get to try out your different tools, um, and you're also building your confidence and kind of realizing, hey, it's not as bad as I thought, I can handle this, I can do this, right? And so you're slowly moving up that ladder. Um, now, the and a really important piece is sometimes even though for a parent, we might not really understand our child's anxiety and we might think, well, this should be easy to do, but if it's something that causes anxiety, it's not going to be easy to do. Um, so it's really important to know that this is really brave for kids to be taking this on, right? And so it can be sometimes important. So there's sort of an internal, the internal motivation of, you know, building your confidence, which is great, but sometimes we also work in rewards where it's, you know, you get through a step and for the smaller steps, you get smaller rewards. And once you get up to the higher steps, that's where you get some of the bigger rewards. Yeah. And I will add to that, uh, the rewards part of the exposure is so critical. I find for a lot of kids because often for children, I mean, I do, I do see some children who are very motivated to do exposure and they really want to get over their fears and their anxieties. Um, but a vast majority of them are really scared, right? So when we set up these rewards, it just helps give that little boost of motivation to face their fears. Um, and it just, it's something concrete that they know that they're going to receive. It doesn't have to necessarily be um, something really expensive. Like Dr. Jen was saying, it could be even a point system too, right? Like you get um, a couple of points for every exposure step. And then once you reach 10 points, let's say you can trade that in for something of a higher value. So it doesn't necessarily have to be monetary or expensive. Um, and it can even be rewards like spending uh, extra one-on-one -on -one time with your child, right? Like when you get through these steps, um, you know, we'll spend an hour playing outside together, for example, right? So it could be something more in the social um, domain versus a physical or monetary or toy or something, right? Um, but the rewards I find are critical. Sometimes I'll have parents say, the rewards are not working, the rewards are not working. Um, so there could be two reasons for that. It could be one, perhaps the child is working on a step that's just too difficult. So you may want to go back to something a bit easier or two, maybe the reward is not salient enough, right? So sometimes parents think kids want things without realizing that they don't really care for it. Um, for example, offering your child, you know, candy or lollipop for doing a step. Well, maybe they don't really want that. Um, so having the child generate the list of rewards is also a very important step, like have them write out what do they want to get out of this, right? So um, that way we know that they're actually gonna work towards the reward. I was just gonna, um, Dr. Layla, I was just gonna add to what you were saying, but you, you kind of hit it there where it's just having the kids involved is so important. Um, and as we've said a couple of times today, the kids are so creative, right? And so um, they can actually make it fun too, right? And kind of come up with clever ideas and interesting ideas and things that as a parent, we might not even have entertained the idea. And they'll come up with these really great ideas for what they want. And again, it doesn't, it's not necessarily something expensive or something big, um, but just something that they'd like that seems appropriate for that step in the, in the fear ladder. Yeah, and you touched on another really important point with 
um, working up these fear ladders. And, you know, sometimes when we hear families saying, Hey, it's not quite working. They're struggling on this step. Um, very often the reason is because the anxiety is too overwhelming at that step. So I often talk to my kiddos and families, um, about this idea of finding that sweet spot of anxiety. So if we look at that scale from one to 10 with 10 being the most anxiety provoking it could possibly be, we're looking for, you know, experiencing the level of anxiety at like a one to three um, sort of range. And then when those steps go down to around a zero to one, that's the point at which we move up to the next step. So we stick with the step until the anxiety level goes down enough for us to move on to the next step, just to make sure that we're not um, tackling a step that's so overwhelming that we just shut down and end up avoiding it and continuing to reinforce that um, cycle of anxiety. Yeah, and I, and I will add to that, that um, how quickly that process happens is so variable, right? Like I've had some clients come in and they can go through steps so quickly, right? Like something they've been so scared of for years and then all of a sudden, when we start um, the process of challenging the thoughts and doing the exposure within days or weeks, it's resolved. Um, and then I've had other clients, you know, over the years that it, it takes months and months and months to work on very simple steps, um, you know, especially when you start to get into the OCD like um, anxiety. So um, every child is different. You have to go at the pace of your child and when they're willing and ready. Um, and the motivation piece is key, right? You really need to get your child or your adolescent on board if you're expecting to see success. And that's where some of the education around how anxiety works can be really, really helpful too, just to get them to understand that this is actually a way of dealing with the anxiety, of tackling, of fighting back um, against the anxiety. That also can be helpful because again, some of these things can feel a little counterintuitive when we're scared of doing something and somebody's saying, hey, that's actually the thing that we need to do. So yeah, those two pieces, the motivators as well as the education around it can really be helpful for kids. So parents can play a really important role in helping their kids um, learn how to challenge anxiety and put some of these strategy into practice. Dr. Jen, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about some ideas on how parents can support their kids who are working on their anxiety. Definitely. So I think one of the things that comes into my office a lot um, that parents ask about or talk about is sometimes they don't understand the anxiety and they can get at times very frustrated, um, even kind of angry about the anxiety because of their lack of understanding. So I think for parents really trying to take a couple steps back, um, knowing that the kid does not want this anxiety there. Um, and as we talked about before, I think really kind of seeing it as, you know, the, we talked about externalizing. So the anxiety is over here and your kids over here and you and your child are working as a team against the anxiety. Um, so really kind of having that team approach that we're doing this together and that you're supporting your your child through this experience. Um, one of the things that we talk a lot about, um, I talk about it in my office, I talk about it in my home, um, is um, kind of our uh, coach versus critic, right? So sometimes we'll, we'll talk about when a lot of the thoughts are really negative or, or when there's a lot of anxious thoughts there, just trying to say, okay, that's the critic that's talking to me right now. Um, I need to call in the coach, right? So sometimes the parent plays a role as the coach and it's sort of helping the, the child and helping coach them through some of the anxiety. But ultimately we want the child to be able to call on their own sort of internal coach, right? So, okay, um, feeling really anxious about meeting this uh, new person or going over to a friend's house for, for, a, for a play date or hangout. Um, I'm feeling anxious about it. I have all these worry thoughts. I'm going to call in my coach, right? And the coach is almost like a little pep talk that you give yourself about, you know what, it's probably going to go okay. You know, there might be some things I'm worried about, but I'm going to be able to handle it. I'm actually probably going to have a fun time. Um, I really like this person. I like the, the person that I'm going to be hanging out with. We're going to do all sorts of fun things, right? So it's just kind of giving yourself that little bit of a, a pep talk. So the role of the parents is really, you know, initially it's sort of helping them to, to see how that works and then kind of providing the modeling so that eventually the child is going to be able to do that themselves. Another thing that comes up often is um, sometimes the worry is just, 
you know, there's so many of them and they come up in the, and, and it's so often and it's all throughout the day. So I've also talked to, to kids and teenagers um, as well as their parents about setting aside worry time, um, which seems a little bit unusual, but it's basically just um, having a certain time of day. I, I usually say not right before bed um, or not before you have to go out the door to get to school, um, but choosing a time of day, uh, you know, maybe an hour after school or just after dinner time or something like that. Um, where you've got some time set aside and you just talk about all of your worries and the parent can be there for that too. Um, sometimes with teenagers, they prefer to do it on their own, but with younger kids, the parent can be there and you just basically, it's like unloading all the worries. Uh, and what often happens is there's not as many worries as you think, right? Um, and sometimes in the initial stages, there do seem, there seems to be a lot, but then it starts to go down, right? And the idea behind the worry time is it's just, then when your worries come in throughout the day and it's not a good time, you say, okay, I'm gonna just set that aside for now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna worry about that during worry time so that it's not invading your entire day. And it just kind of helps to um, set the worry aside, at, but you still know at some point I'm gonna think about this. Yeah, and I would like to add to that. Uh, I, I love that um, strategy of that dedicated worry time in your day, right? Um, and, and having that time be the time that you feel comfortable kind of releasing all that energy and all that worry. Um, but what I find a lot of um, people with anxiety notice is that, or at least that I notice as, as the um, therapist helping them, is that when they're in that state of worry, 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 it's not very productive worry, right? It's like kind of like um, not helpful worry. They don't usually come up with solutions when they're in their, that state of flight or fight. It's just looking out for threatened danger, um, self-protect, but not really coming up with good solutions. But when you start to practice that dedicated worry time, like Dr. Jen mentioned, um, I find it's a lot more productive worry, right? It's kind of like, well, I have this problem, but I'm, I'm a bit calmer now and I can come up with some better solutions. What I notice with my clients is that early on in their use of worry time, they fill the whole time. There are so many worries that by the end of it, you know, they, they still have lots more to say. And then even within a few days, oftentimes by, you know, the third day or so, they don't even know what to talk about, or they kind of forget. They're like, oh yeah, I was supposed to do worry time, but I forgot to do it, which is a really good thing. Um, so I like that strategy a lot as well. And I find it's a really nice balance of providing comfort and validation for some of these feelings. So helping the child, you know, not, not feel ignored for what they're feeling, um, but also containing it. So it's not taking over the entire day and it's not turning into that reassurance seeking model that we talked about in our last episode. Another thing um, we do, we've talked about it asleep a little bit uh, this session, but uh, I do find a lot of kids will tell me that they have their worries are seem to be the worst right before they go to sleep. Um, and to be honest, I have this as well. Um, I think it's quite normal. We have a higher level of cortisol before we go to sleep. Um, so again, it's sort of, and even for myself, it's, you know, like a lot of these strategies are not just for kids, they're for, for parents too. Um, so sometimes I'll catch myself and I'm having worries right before I go to sleep. And I'll say, you know what, this is not a good time, right? Because like that balance beam I talked about earlier, right? I'm Because my cortisol level's higher, right? I'm gonna be really overestimating some of the bad things here. So I'm just gonna leave it for now and that'll be a worry to deal with tomorrow right and it's just that uh, that idea of being able to like okay this isn't the right time for it i'll deal with that when i have more energy and i'm not in an anxious state and i'll deal with it at a time where i can manage it a little bit better yes i completely agree with that um, some of my kids even like to go as far as writing it down and putting it on their desk or putting it somewhere outside of their bed. So again, they're kind of externalizing some of these worries, um, just getting them out of their head and shifting their focus onto something else. And I think it can even be empowering just the idea of, you know, you write it down, right? It's just like getting it out of your head. Okay. It's, it's out of my head now. I'll deal with it later, but even that can be quite empowering. And I've, I've also had kids sometimes who will say, but what if I forget about the worry and worry time comes and I've forgotten about it? And I say, well, that would yeah. be great, right? If it's if you've forgotten about it, that's good. That's what we're hoping for here. Um, so again, we sometimes will say if they're, you know, if it's a big thing and they say, well, I need to actually think it through, then you can write it down. Um, but kind of interesting that they sometimes their worry is that they're going to forget about their worries. <laughs> mm -hmm. Or they think about it later and realize it's not really that important or it's a silly worry or they have a solution right away, right? So it's interesting mm -hmm. when you delay it, how much more effective the worry time becomes. 
So as Dr. Mary asked about what parents can do to help support their kids, um, one factor to consider is it's going to depend on your individual child, but also dependent on their age and their developmental needs, right? So a younger child may need more parental support or guidance through a lot of these stages versus an older adolescent um, may not really like that much involvement from parents. So maybe you can remind them here and there, uh, but you really want to take a step back and allow your teen to, um, you know, approach it at their own um, or approach it when they're ready, right? So um, a couple of strategies parents can do, we've covered this in the podcast, but creating coping cards can be really helpful across the ages. So with a younger child, you could sit down and actually do the coping cards with them versus a teen, you would just, you know, suggest that they make coping cards. Um, so I know Anxiety Canada, which is a great website that we recommend often, um, has a coping cards um, PDF that you can download and it has some very specific um, guidelines around how to do that. But basically on the coping card, you want to put some statements that are um, going against the anxious thought. Um, you can also include things like, um, oh, when I'm feeling this way or my body's feeling this way, I know I'm in a state of anxiety or this is how my body feels anxiety, just to remind yourself that that's um, anxiety that's uh, coming up. Um, the name perhaps that you've given the anxiety. So for example, Mr. Worry or the pest. Um, reminders that the anxiety is not dangerous and it will, won't last forever. So often in therapy, I'll, I'll tell my clients things like, you know, even if you do nothing, this state cannot last forever, right? So if you give it enough time, uh, you know, 30, 40 minutes, probably at the most, this state of anxiety is going to go down. So just rest assured that you're not going to feel this way for much longer. And that really helps deescalate them when they're feeling really panicky. Um, sometimes we give the analogy of anxiety is like a hill that is very quickly to ascend and then very slow to descend, right? Um, so they may initially feel 10 out of 10 anxiety. And then as their body is slowly um, releasing less and less cortisol and adrenaline, they're going to feel less anxious as they go along. And if they use some of that, you know, relaxation uh, techniques we talked about earlier can actually help that process go quicker where they're feeling less anxious over time uh, much more quickly. Um, using a lot of positive coping statements on the coping cards can be helpful. Um, and then reminders of what to do. So for example, when I'm feeling this way, do some relaxation, do some deep breathing, use visualization. Um, Dr. Mary spoke a few moments ago about the coping toolbox. I find that's a, a very helpful strategy as well. Um, so parents can help younger kids create those. Teens can use this strategy too, but it's really helpful with children especially. Um, so just helping them create one, um, keep it stocked, keep it nearby, for example, for when they're feeling anxious. And then the last one I wanted to mention, which we talked about in the last podcast, introducing anxiety, is um, parents, you know, one of the th most important things they can do in terms of coaching and helping their child is not to do too much of that reassurance, right? So I won't go at length because we, we addressed in our last podcast, but really the idea is the more we reassure our child, um, the actual, it actually makes their anxiety worse over time. So we want them to start developing their own internal dialogue about you know, reassuring themselves and using some of those coping statements and really challenging some of those anxious thoughts. Just to add to what Dr. Layla said too, um, you know, so there, these are all things that um, we can practice as parents as well, right? So, um, and, you know, I think it's really great. We've talked about modeling um, for our kids before, but, um, you know, even having a, a coping toolbox of our own can be great, right? And then the child feels like, oh, like mom does it or dad does it. So that makes me more comfortable doing it, right? And sometimes normalizes the anxiety too. Um, and I talk to, even in sessions, I always talk to um, the kids and the teens that I see about, I use these tools as well. Um, there's one deep breathing technique that I always teach kids and I, and I do it too. Um, and it's interesting too, because, and my son knows that I do it, right? So the odd time, like if we're running late for hockey practice or something, he'll even kind of remember and he'll be like, oh, you know what, mom, you should do some, some uh, box breathing right now or some deep breathing right now, right? And I've talked to parents about that. It's great, like you get the kids involved too, right? And it's sort of like, they're your coach um, at, at times as well, right? And again, it's that kind of empowering feeling and it's also that normalizing. Everybody has these anxious times or these emotional times times. A lot of my kids really love that when they also get to teach their parents about anxiety or teach them about some of these strategies, they really enjoy doing that. So it is a nice way of, you know, kind of tackling it together or at the very least modeling it for our kids. Um, 
Now, we've talked a fair bit, you know, about anxiety and how to cope with anxiety. And we know that some anxiety is certainly normal, that it's something we all experience um, in, in different ways. But I'm wondering, Dr. Jen, if you might be able to talk about the signs that we would look for that would indicate we might need our child or our teen to seek professional help. Yeah, so we're talking about strategies to kind of try and and you know we're we're talking about more for mild um, anxiety when you know and and even for we're suggesting these ideas to parents, but um, I think as a parent don't don't feel like if one of these strategies doesn't work that you're doing it wrong or that you know that that you're not doing it the correct way. Um, it, it's it some of these things are they're really easy to explain, but they're more difficult to actually put in into practice, right? So um, for some kids, some of these things when it's a bit more mild will work well. Um, for other kids, um, we talked about this a little bit before in one of our other episodes, but one of the big issues is when we start to see the anxiety interfering with their day-to-day -day life. So if it's really getting in the way of the things that, that kids should be doing, so things like getting to school, getting their homework done, um, getting out the door in the morning, their sleep, being able to sleep through the night, things like that. Um, it's really kind of that red flag of okay you know this we need more help here um, and every child is so unique and the way they experience these things can be so different um, so it's just that sort of ah you know they're really struggling just with day-to-day -day life um, so maybe it would be helpful to get some some professional uh, help at this point um, another big piece that and again we did mention this before but it's sort of as a parent you just sort of like that gut feeling you know like ah there's just there's something i don't i can't put my finger on it but something's not right um, and sometimes the kids anxiety can it can just look so different for different children right so for some it might come up as like they're angry all the time or they're really irritable or um you know, for others, it might be more physical symptoms. So they might have a lot of stomach aches or headaches, or, you know, they're, they're really having a lot of difficulty sleeping um, or getting sleeping through the night or falling asleep, right? So it's sort of that if you're just something doesn't feel right and you're not really sure what, that might even be, you know, kind of that suggestion of, hey, maybe I need to reach out for help and just find out a little bit more. Maybe, you know, it's just kind of a consultation and, and speaking with a professional, or maybe it, it will be a little bit, it might be short term, it might be longer term. And I'll just add one little thing um, to that. Uh, you know, there are kids who, for sure, a large proportion will avoid or you'll see that they're not able to engage in the activity anymore. So, for example, getting to school might become very difficult or you'll see a lot of school avoidance. Um, but then there's also a subset of the population, you know, that I see that they still engage in the activities, whether it be uh, going to school or seeing friends or competitive sports, for example, is a common one. But it's with such a high level of distress prior or during the activity that um, they just don't enjoy it anymore, right? So it's almost like they just don't have fun anymore and they really don't enjoy. So their quality of life is really affected by the anxiety. And I would argue that that's also a time where we need to seek some, some professional help because um, it's just taken away from that quality of life that they have. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And similar to what you're saying, Dr. Layla, I think also for the kiddos or teens who have this kind of perfectionistic anxiety, um, it, they might do all of these activities, they might go through it, but you might notice they're throwing up beforehand as an example, or you might notice that they're spending hours on their homework, even though they're doing really well in school. So those would be other things that we would want to pay attention to where sometimes just because they seem to be functioning well um, with respect to achievement or um, making it to all of these extracurricular activities or whatever it is. But again, if we're looking for that degree of distress, like how stressed out they are before a test or how stressed out they are and how long it's, it's taking for them to do their homework, those are other really important factors to consider. So we've talked a little bit about some of these resources for anxiety, and there are some fantastic resources out there now, which is a really nice thing because this wasn't always the case um, where we had such, you know, easy access to these wonderful resources. I'm wondering if we could spend a little time um, talking about just like our top resources that we recommend for parents. Um, and Dr. Layla, do you have any, any suggestions for that? Absolutely. So we, we did mention this one several times, but it is a favorite, um, anxietycanada.com. 
evidence-based CBT-based strategies for dealing with all kinds of different anxieties. They have a parent portal as well as a child and adolescent portal. So there's videos, there's handouts you can download. Um, if you're looking for worksheets on things like fear ladders or how to approach that, coping cards, uh, relaxation techniques, scripts for them uh, for relaxation techniques, they're all on this website. Again, Canadian-based. So that's www.anxietycanada.com. And that is really like a one-stop shop for parents and for children and teens if they're looking to address some of their anxious symptoms. And another one that I like a lot um, is the About Kids Health, which is from Sick Kids in Toronto. Um, they have a lot of information online, but I really like their YouTube channel. Um, so it's again, youtube.com about kids health and they have tons of videos um, specifically geared towards uh, meditation and mindfulness and deep breathing um, so that's really great if you're looking for an auditory um, uh, video or something to follow as a guide as well so i really like the sick kids um, website as well um, another one that I find is is really helpful. Um, there's a series of books. They're the uh, we refer to them as the what to do books, um, uh, and it's it's different things. Like for example, what to do when you worry too much um, is one of them. But there's all sorts of different ones. Uh, what to do when your brain gets stuck. What to do when your temper flares. Um, and they're by Don Hubner. So it's a series of books. And like I say, it's just different topics, but just um, they're great. I think it's about ages six to twelve, um, six to twelve years old. Um, but just the parents and kids can walk through the books together. And again, I find it's really helpful. The feedback that I've heard from parents is that they find them really helpful to for them to understand sort of the issue, the challenge that the kid's facing. Um, and then there are sort of um, there's things, there's drawings and, and different activities for the kids to do in the books. So I found those really helpful as well. Yeah, I really like those ones as well. And Martin Antony, um, so that's A-N-T-O-N-Y. So Antony um, also has some fantastic books. So books for things like working on specific phobias, like medical phobias or um, phobias related to animals or insects. Um, and he also has some really great books on perfectionism as well. So I, I like him as an author also. Absolutely. And I'll just add a couple of more. So one book that I um, always recommend to parents, I've been using this one for several years, just because it's so easy to follow. And it is written for parents specifically, it's called Helping Your Anxious Child by Ronald Rupee. And so it's just a really good one-stop book if you're going to pick up a book to read. And it has worksheets within the book parents can use about, you know, becoming your child's coach or how to set up exposure. Um, there's scripts for relaxation in there. So that's another really good one as well if you're looking for an actual physical book to read. Um, the last ones I should mention are the apps that have come out recently, and there's so many, and they continue to put out new apps that are really great. Um, Anxiety Canada has their own app called MindShift, and that one is completely free. And there's lots of really good resources on there, like um, coping statements or relaxation techniques. And another one that um, is very good is called Calm. However, that one is a paid subscription. Um, so just keep that in mind. But there's lots of nice meditation and mindfulness um, uh, audio clips in there as well as um, sleep. I really like the sleep stories. I use calm myself at night. Um, the sleep stories are excellent to get you in a state of relaxation um, and sleep. And there's also a kids area in the calm app with kids stories like a fairy tale based um, calming mindfulness uh, stories. Yeah, I find the apps are really popular among my teenage clients. They They like being able to go to an app to get some help for these things. Um, so great suggestions. Thank you. So today we talked about these three different areas of focus for treating anxiety in kids and teens. So the first thing we talked about is identifying and challenging those problematic thoughts. The second is building our coping skills through activities like relaxation and mindfulness strategies. And the third is the importance of exposure. So engaging in these behaviors that challenge our anxiety and slowly building up to facing our fears. So thank you for listening and we look forward to chatting about sleep for our next podcast.